6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Isaiah, chapter 10, verse 5 through chapter 12. Last time we were together in Isaiah, we uh, finished chapter 9, but we interpreted that to include the first four verses of chapter 10. In other words, we got down through chapter 10, verse 4, if my reckoning is correct. In other words, we did chapter 9, but we recognized that the first four verses of chapter 10 were, in effect, uh, the completion of thought of chapter 9. So chapter 10 continues with Isaiah predicting judgment upon the empire of Assyria. You know, we talk a lot about ancient empires, but one thing I just might mention about the Assyrian Empire, it endured for 700 years. It was a major part of the ancient world. And uh, God used it, of course, to judge the northern kingdom, what we call the House of Israel. But uh, just as God will use these various Gentile nations to chastise his people at the same time, What goes around comes around, in a sense. Uh, God ultimately judges those nations also. So the Assyrians happened to be used by God for his purposes, but they were motivated by pride and all of that, and God brings them down. And Isaiah talks a great deal about that in several places, and chapter 10 is one of those. But chapter 10 has some interesting techniques that I think you'll relate to that uh, Isaiah uses here. Pick it up about verse 5, chapter 10, verse 5. O Assyrian, the rod of mine anger... The staff in whose hand is mine indignation. So this is uh, God speaking of of Assyria as his instrument. That doesn't absolve them of their comeuppance, which is coming too. But that's an interesting uh, phrase, the rod of mine anger. One of the things you can do on your own, by the way, we won't take the time here because it would derail the whole study, but I encourage you to get a concordance and do a study of the Assyrian in the Bible. The Assyrian is a title, of course, of the leader of the Assyrian Empire, That's the denotative use of it. The connotative, a broader use, the idiomatic use of it, is that it also is used as a title of the Antichrist. And that may surprise you. The Antichrist, in effect, the person we call the Antichrist, I happen not to like that term, but I think we're stuck with it, has about 33 titles in the Old Testament, and the Assyrian is one of them. That doesn't necessarily mean that he's of an Assyrian background. It's an idiom, just as Satan is spoken of as the king of Babylon. We'll see in chapter 14. We'll deal with that when we get there. But the point is, be sensitive to some of these labels. It's interesting, too, that the pharaoh that knew not Joseph, if you recall, Jacob and the family went down to Egypt, and they prospered down there. As the generations went on, of course, we read in the book of Exodus, that what emerged was a pharaoh who knew not Joseph. In other words, that was not favorable to the people of Israel. And, of course, we all know the story of Pharaoh and Moses delivering Egypt, the ten plagues, and all of that. What you may not realize is that Pharaoh was not Egyptian. We're indebted to Isaiah. Later on in the book, we'll deal with that, that apparently Pharaoh was not Egyptian. He was Assyrian. And as we understand that, 
we begin to appreciate why he was so paranoid and insecure because his slave population had grown so large and he did not have an indigenous Egyptian following. So that helps us understand a little bit about the slippery rock he may have been standing on in the, in the book of Exodus. But we'll get into that a little later in Isaiah. But I like to alert you, at least as you study the Bible, to be sensitive to the possible idiomatic or typological terms of the Assyrian. But in any case, we'll move on now. Verse 6, God says, I will send him against the hypocritical nation, against the people of my wrath, will I command him to take spoil and to take a prey. And to tread them down like mire in the streets. Well, that's pretty straightforward. God is uh, going to use him to accomplish his purpose. What you may miss, because you're not reading in the Hebrew, is that to uh, command him to take the spoil and take a prey. That's the name of one of these two sons of Isaiah. Remember? How hard it was to pronounce, but that's what it meant. Remember? Uh, the haste bakes waste guy. Later on, we're also going to find out that the one that uh, uh, the remnant shall return will also surface in this language here. The Mahar Shahal Hajbaz. Remember, that was the, that's what surfaces here in effect is behind the language in verse 6. There's sort of a pun involved. But verse 7, how be it? He meaneth not so, neither does his heart think so, but it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. For he saith, are not my princes altogether kings? The word princes really should be vassals. In other words, the, the head of Assyria had a decentralized form of organization. The Assyrian Empire had vassal kings under the numero uno, if you will. And he says, uh, are not my princes altogether kings? By the way, do you see the analogy there? That makes the head of the Assyrian Empire the king of kings. Actually, kings, king of vassals, but you can follow that through yourself. But then he goes on with a few phrases here that may go by us because we haven't done our homework. In verse 9, is not Kalno like Karshemesh? Is not Hamath like Arpad? Is not Samaria like Damascus? Well, Kalno was in a lower Mesopotamia. It was a city of Nimrod mentioned in Genesis 10. Uh, where the Tower of Babylon was built. In fact, that is inserted in the Septuagint translation. It was desolate in Amos' day, but that's Kalna. Karshemesh is one of the old cities you should know. Kalna, you may remember from Genesis 10, but other than that, it's probably not that significant in your, on your horizon. But Karshemesh should be, because it was, Karshemesh is the, was the northern capital of the Hittites. It was conquered by Sargon in 717 B.C. But the main thing is that it will become important a little later in our narrative because Karshemesh is the battle where Nebuchadnezzar establishes Babylon as the world ruler. Because uh, his father, who was, who was king of uh, this little town called Babylon, had his son, the general. And uh, the Battle of Karshemesh is one of the big final turning points in the emergence of the Babylonian Empire. Battle of Karshemesh. 606 B.C. See, the writer here is making a comparison. Aren't these new cities like the victories of the old, so to speak? Karshmish is referred to because Sargon had conquered it back in 717. Kalna was back in 738 B.C., even earlier. And Hamath was a Canaanite city and uh, was an independent monarch at the time of David. In any case, uh, and Arkbad was uh, reduced by Tilgath-Pileser, the king of Assyria, uh, early in his reign. And... Um, it revolted against him and was severely punished in response, about 740. And is not Samaria like Damascus? The fall of Samaria was 722. Damascus had fallen 10 years earlier, 732. Anyway, these are just contrasts of current victories compared to earlier victories. It's sort of a thumb-under-the-suspenders kind of brag on the part of the Assyrians, in effect. Verse 10, As my hand hath found the kingdoms of the idols... 
and whose carved images did excel them of Jerusalem and Samaria. Shall I not, as I have done unto Samaria and her idols, do so to Jerusalem and her idols? See, that's the brag of the Assyrians. The Assyrians do not succeed against Judah. A hundred years later, Babylon will, but the Assyrians do not. They're bragging, they aspire to, they hope to. God is saying, no, in effect, no way. Verse 11, shall I not, as I have done unto Samarian idols, do so to Jerusalem and her idols? So this is the brag of the Assyrians. Verse 12, wherefore it shall come to pass that when the Lord hath performed his whole work upon Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, I will punish the fruit of the stout heart of king of Assyria and the glory of his high looks. One of the things you, can, you obviously are sensitive to is God hates pride. He hates sin, of course, but the root of sin is pride. We're going to discover when we get chapter 14 why God specifically hates pride. Because that's where sin starts, in the heart of Satan. It was Satan's pride that introduces the whole issue of sin. So God hates pride. The symbol for sin in the Levitical ideology is leaven. Unleavened bread was the idea of being sin-free. In other words, leaven was a type of sin. Why? Because it corrupts by puffing up. That's one way of describing the whole concept of leaven, if you will. Idiomatically speaking, obviously. Verse 13, For he saith, By the strength of my hand I have done it, and by my wisdom, for I am prudent, for I have removed the boundaries of the people, and have robbed their treasures, and I have put down the inhabitants like a valiant man. And my hand hath found as a nest the riches of the people, and as one gathereth eggs that are left, have I gathered all the earth, and there was none that moved the wing, nor opened the mouth, or peeped. <laughs> Even in the English translation, you, you get a sense of the eloquence, the elegance, the, the style of Isaiah, the highest level of Hebrew writing. And, of course, he's drawing the analogy of someone robbing a nest and no one rebutting it. This is the brag of the Assyrians. I'm always intrigued when I've seen an idiom like this, you know, like uh, found as a nest, the riches of the people. And I'm reminded of Matthew 13, if you recall. Remember what birds are in parables. Ministers of Satan. Remember the four soils? The sower that went out in the four soils? And in one of those cases, the, the birds of the field picked up the seed. Then later on, you find those birds even make a nest in this grotesque monstrosity of a mustard seed, which is normally a bush that grows into a tree. Those parables are very often misunderstood. And I strongly encourage you, if you've never done so, is to get Chuck Smith or mine or whoever tapes on Matthew 13 and really understand the seven kingdom parables because they're often mistaught and misunderstood because of a lack of real perspective. And so I encourage you to, to repair that if you haven't done it or if it's been a while, review that. But anyway, we'll move on. It's incidental to our purpose here. I think I have wandered from the main course you know, once or twice in previous years. Um, I'll try to watch that. Yeah. Uh, verse 15, shall the axe boast itself against him that heweth with it? Or shall the saw magnify itself against him that shaketh it? As if the rod should shake itself against those who lift it up, or if the staff should lift up him that is not wood. Now, of course, he's referring here to the Assyrians as an instrument of God, right? As if it's boasting itself. But whenever I read this sort of thing, I'm always reminded of the same thing today. You see, we have the same concept that underlies evolution. It's the paper that wrote the book. See, that's the whole concept of evolution, isn't it? They don't see the evidence of a designer. They see design in nature and assume that nature designed itself. 
That's like saying the paper wrote the book. Same idea. It would confuse the medium with the artist. But in any case, that's perhaps very peripheral. Let's move on. Verse 16. Therefore shall the Lord, the Lord of hosts, send among his fat ones leanness, and under his uh, glory shall he kindle a burning fire like the burning of a fire. And the light of Israel shall be for a fire, and his holy one for a flame that shall burn and devour his thorns and his briars in one day. Verse 12 says the whole work on Mount Zion, and verse 17 says in one day. So when it comes, it's going to come hard and quick. In verse 17, we also have an introduction of another title of God, the light of Israel. Interesting title. You should be reminded of John, chapter 1, verse 9. Who is the light of the world? Who is the light of the world? Jesus, you betcha. And uh, he came unto his own, but his own received him not, it says in verse 11. Who were his own? The Jews, exactly. And so it's interesting that the light of Israel is what, who is it referring to? Who is the light of Israel? Jesus Christ, specifically. And the light of Israel shall be for a fire, and his holy one for a flame. And it shall burn and devour his thorns and briars in one day. The second coming of Jesus Christ. I'm not talking about the rapture now. I'm talking about the second coming in authority. He comes back twice. Once for the church and once for Israel. To fulfill all the promises. But that comes with judgment and vengeance. The day of vengeance of our God. We'll discover when we get to chapter 61 of Isaiah. The very mandate that Jesus uses to open his ministry. When he reads chapter 61 of Isaiah, the first two verses in the, in the synagogue. And says, this day is that prophecy fulfilled in your ears. He announces, he opens his ministry with a mandate out of Isaiah chapter 61. But he leaves off the last phrase. He finishes it. When he gets to a comma, he puts a period in effect. Closes the book, sits down and says, this day is that fulfilled in your ears. He didn't finish verse 2 of Isaiah 61. He left off a phrase. The phrase he left off was the day of vengeance of our God. That's yet to be fulfilled. Most of us, unless we've done a very diligent study of the scripture, haven't the slightest perception what Jesus will be about when he comes back. Isaiah will spread it out for us very clearly in chapter 63 and other places. So we'll get to that as we go. Verse 18, continuing the thought, And shall consume the glory of his forest and of his fruitful field, both soul and body, and they shall be as when a standard bearer fainteth, and the rest of the trees of his forest shall be few that a child can write them down. In other words, not much left. But... Isaiah always, in these passages where he lays it down on them, also always reminds them that a remnant shall return. Verse 20, It shall come to pass in that day that the remnant of Israel, and such as, has, as have escaped of the house of Jacob, shall no more again lean upon him who smote them, but shall lean upon the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. Verse 21, And a mere remnant... That's really what the Hebrew implies. A mere remnant shall return, even the remnant of Jacob, unto the mighty God. The remnant shall return, even the remnant of Jacob, unto the mighty God. It's interesting, after the Babylonian captivity, how many people returned? We talk about the return from Babylon. How many were there? About 50,000. Not much. 42,000 plus another seven, some other odds. and depends on how you number it. I won't be precise in the numbers. But in Ezra, you'll discover that the remnant that returned from Babylon after they were freed by Cyrus the Persian were nominal. Indeed, a remnant. That's always the model. As you study the scripture, it's always a remnant. 
out of the old world in Genesis 6 on. How many were saved out of the entire world? Out of several billion probably. How many were saved? Eight. Yeah. Interesting. Eight is the number of new beginnings. Verse 22. For though thy people Israel be like the sand of the sea, yet a remnant of them shall return, and the full end decreed shall overflow with righteousness. For the Lord God of hosts shall make a full end, even determined in the midst of all of the land. Verse 24. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God of hosts, O my people that dwell in Zion, be not afraid of the Assyrian. He shall smite thee with a rod, and he shall lift up a staff against thee after the manner of Egypt. It's very interesting to see how often God makes reference to the deliverance from Egypt. You'll notice throughout the Old Testament, again and again and again, God alludes to himself as the one that delivered Israel from Egypt. And even here where they're talking about the business of Assyria, and again you'll, you'll see all through here, starting this verse but several other places, there are these parallels being drawn. And uh, I encourage you to be sensitive to that when you study the book of Exodus to realize that that is a very pivotal, fundamental piece of learning. The ten plagues in Egypt and the whole deliverance that uh, God engineers through Moses. The Passover, model of Jesus Christ. But the whole deliverance is, is worthy of your study because it's a pattern of revelation and it's a pattern that is, is repeated and, and frequently alluded to. And it's interesting uh, that uh, these comparisons... Just after the, after the deliverance of Egypt, we also have the Song of Moses as an interlude. After Isaiah 10 and 11, we're going to have Isaiah 12, which is a psalm, a little psalm tucked in the book of Isaiah. But uh, we're getting ahead of ourselves. Verse 25, For yet a little while, and the indignation shall cease, and mine anger in their destruction. And the Lord of hosts shall stir up a scourge for him, according to the slaughter of Midian at the rock of Oreb. And as his rod was upon the sea, so shall he lift it up after the manner of Egypt. Mixing metaphors here a little bit. The slaughter of Midian at the rock of Oreb makes reference to Joshua 7. That's Gideon and all of that. Remember, Gideon is 300. It's an allusion to that, which of course is historical. But again... Isaiah doesn't leave it at that. He goes again and draws another parallel again to Egypt. As his rod was upon the sea, so shall he lift it up after the manner of Egypt. And that's, of course, Exodus 4 and 14 and so on. Verse 27, shall come to pass in that day that his burden shall be taken away from off thy shoulder and his yoke from off thy neck, and the yoke shall be destroyed because of the anointed one. It says anointing in some of your Bibles, perhaps. It's a person, the anointed one. The yoke shall be destroyed because of the anointed one. There's lots of background we could dig out here. Um, back here in verse 26, the scourge for him according to the slaughter of Midian. That was really the destruction of Sennacherib. You'll find that in 2 Kings 19. For those of you who want to tie this into the, to the chronological, uh, the historical narrative, you might link that to 2 Kings 19. And, of course, the rod of Moses is in Exodus 4, verses 3 and 4, and Exodus 14. And when you study the rod of Moses, make a distinction between the rod of Moses and the rod of Aaron and so forth. There's some subtleties that you can draw little diagrams and study with. But that's, again, the study out of Exodus. I'll leave that for those of you that want to plunge into that. Okay, now the anointed one here is a double reference in a sense because it, of course, refers to Hezekiah because he will be a, a, a key king there. And that's 2 Samuel 19 and 2 Kings 11, also alluded to in Lamentations 4, verse 20. But, of course, the broader allusion is, of course, to the Messiah. 
You know, this is all, of course, Assyria and goes on. But I, I'm fascinated with the way Isaiah presents verse 28 and on. And uh, um, obviously in a casual reading, you miss some of the what's almost humor here. Because what Isaiah is going to do, he's predicting the Assyrian attack. And he does it by issuing war bulletins in advance. You see, he talks as if he's a TV announcer narrating it real time. Okay? Notice how, what Isaiah says. He has gone to Aath. He has passed to Migron. At Mishmash he hath stored his baggage. They have gone over the pass. They have taken up the lodging at Geba. Ramah is afraid, and Gibeah of Saul is fled. Lift up thy voice, O daughter of Galam. Cause it to be heard, O Eliasha, O poor Anathoth. Madmina is removed. The inhabitants of Gibim gather themselves to flee. And as yet he shall remain at Nob that day. He shall shake his hand against the mount of daughter of Zion, the hill of Jerusalem. Behold, the Lord God of the, the Lord, the Lord of hosts, shall lop the bow with terror, and the high ones of stature shall be hewn down, and the haughty shall be humbled, and he shall cut down the thickest of the forest with iron, and Lebanon shall fall by a mighty one. Now, Obviously, most of us will miss the pace here unless you have a little background here. Verse 28, he has come to Ai. That's in Joshua chapter 8. Uh, for those of you who want to look in that, it's about three miles south of Bethel. But to put it in perspective for you and I, it's about 30 miles northeast of Jerusalem. Isaiah and his constituency is where? In Jerusalem. So when he says Ai, think 30 miles away. Okay. He has come to Ai. He has passed to Migron. Okay, Migron, that's the Gibeah of Benjamin, 1 Samuel 14. That's about, um, uh, all that's about 30 miles north or so. At Mishmash, he hath stored his baggage. Mishmash is seven and a half miles north of Jerusalem. See, these places are progressively closer. You follow me? You see, he's speaking geographically. He's dropping these names. And yes, you can look up and concordance and stuff, chase this down. Uh, Mishmash uh, is where Jonathan was against the Philistines. It's a very, very diff for those of you with military uh, backgrounds, uh, you probably know it's a very difficult place to attack. 1 Samuel 14 is a place to dig into that if you want to. Verse 29, Geba, or Geba is uh, about uh, six miles northwest. And uh, the passage you get, it refers to 1 Samuel 13. Ramah is about six miles north of Jerusalem. The Gibeah of Saul is about four miles north of Jerusalem. And then in, uh, in verse 30, uh, Galam is the birthplace of the second husband of Michael, for whatever that's worth, Saul's daughter, if you recall. Uh, Laish is, um, again, uh, north of Jerusalem. Anathoth is, the, is a city of refuge, if you recall from Joshua chapter 21. But it's also Jeremiah's birthplace. But the main point here, it's about three miles north, see? Then we have uh, Madnia and Gabim, which are about one to two miles north. Gabim, which are about one to two miles north. And uh, they're cisterns north of Jerusalem. Now we get to Nob. Nob is inside of Jerusalem. It's Mount, what we call today Mount Scopus. It was uh, a priestly city uh, destroyed by Saul in 1 Samuel 22. But the main point here in the spirit of this, this passage is it's inside. In other words, what Isaiah is saying... Let me paraphrase this, you see. Verse 28 says, he's 30 miles north of Jerusalem. No, no, he's seven and a half. No, no, he's six, four miles, then three, then one to two. Now he's within sight. Film at 11. See? 
and it, he shall remain, verse 32, he shall remain at Nob that day, and he shall shake his hand against the mount of the daughter of Zion, the hill of Jerusalem. Behold, the Lord God, the Lord of hosts, shall lop the bow with terror, and the high winds of stature shall be hewn down, and the haughty shall be humbled, and he shall be cut down. He shall cut down the thickets of the forest with iron, and Lebanon shall fall by a mighty one. So they're going to attack, they're going to threaten Jerusalem, but God interferes. Because who conquers Jerusalem? Not the Assyrians. Babylon will a hundred years later. And the northern kingdom fell in 722 B.C. The southern kingdom, Judah, Jerusalem, fell to Nebuchadnezzar, the successor to the Assyrians, in 606 B.C., essentially, to give you a rough flavor of it. So that's probably as much damage as we can do to chapter 10 for one evening. It's uh, basically a a chronicle of the judgments both by and then on Assyria. Now we get to chapter 11. What makes Isaiah so much fun is, yes, he has these heavy-duty passages, and yet he... He sprinkles it with little surprises. And chapter 11 is one of those sprinkles. He changes, he shifts gears here, changes the subject. Verse 1, and there shall come forth a rod, or uh, can rephrase that, a twig, out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. This is, in a sense, it's speaking in, in uh, tree terms, but it's speaking of a family tree, you see. Out of the stem of Jesse. What came out of Jesse? Jesse was the father of whom? David. You betcha. And a branch shall grow forth out of his roots. Even though it's cut down, there's going to be a branch, a twig, a, a sprout. Now what you miss here is the, uh, is the word branch, by the way. The branch of Jeremiah in chapter 23 and 33 is a king. The branch of Zechariah, chapter 3 and chapter 6, is a man. The branch here in Isaiah is a nutzer. And there's a pun, a Hebrew pun involved, because a netzer is a Nazarene. So Jesus Christ is the branch of Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. But he's also a Nazarene. And if you, in the Hebrew, is, there's a, a play on words. Follow me? Because obviously he was a Nazarene. He grew up in Nazareth. But more importantly, in a sense, he was a netzer of, of uh, uh, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. Now he is a, he's also spoke, one of his many titles of Jesus Christ is the root of David. You find that in Romans 15, 12. You find it in Revelation 22, verse 16. I personally uh, suggest we take a look at Revelation 5, just to pick one of these several references. Oh, on the way to Revelation, let's stop off at Matthew 2. (laughs) That's nothing else that'll sell more tabs at the bookstore. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Isaiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.